We're going to be in James chapter 1, verses 13 to 18 this morning. Last fall, there was a video that went viral on TikTok. Now, if you don't know what that means, that's okay. Ask your kids or grandkids later. They will know what it means, but millions of people watch this particular video. The video is really just of a man at McDonald's, but what made the video uh, particularly interesting was what he did at McDonald's. It's just a snippet of this guy's experience, and uh, what you see in the video is just him walking behind the counter over to the basket where they keep the chicken nuggets, and he grabs a fistful of chicken nuggets, and then he walks out of the store. Uh, now, as he, as he was taking it, uh, here's one headline. Uh, he said this, I got my 20 nuggets. I'm sorry. I'm tired of waiting. McDonald's customer goes to back, grabs a handful of nuggets, Himself, And so he grabs himself this fistful of nuggets, and I saw that, and I thought, okay, I see now why so many people were interested in this. I'm not condoning this behavior. Don't go to McDonald's and do this. Don't go anywhere and do this. But if you're honest, you kind of know how he feels. I mean, let's analyze this for a minute. The guy went into a restaurant, ordered something, and maybe you've experienced this. You've, you've gone somewhere, you've either ordered something or, or you've been waiting to sit down at a restaurant, and they tell you a certain time period, and it, and it takes a lot longer than you think it's going to take. And so as you're waiting, you begin to get hungrier and hungrier, and what you're facing is an external set of circumstances, a trial that creates an internal feeling in you of hunger that leads to anger, that leads to feelings of loss of control. And maybe, I'm not saying anybody in here has done this, but maybe in a moment of that type of pressure, you've said or you've done something that you would regret looking back on later. You've said something to the host at the restaurant or something along those lines. This is a common phenomenon. Uh, I actually found a coffee mug in our kitchen this week. Uh, I don't know how well you can read this from where you are, so let me, let me show you. Uh, on one side, it says hangry, and it has a definition of the word hangry, a state of anger caused by lack of food, creating irrational and erratic emotion. And on the other side, it simply says, I'm sorry for what I said when I was hungry. Now, a lot of us know that feeling. Right? Not just maybe when we're hungry, maybe when you're driving to the office and somebody in front of you is going 25 in a 35 and you look to the heavens and you say, why God am I in this position? I left on time. He's going slow. You begin to get angry. You honk. Maybe you make gestures with your hands you would not otherwise make in normal society. And you look back and go, who was that person? What happened to me? Right? External trials can do something in our hearts that causes us to respond in ways we wouldn't otherwise want to respond, to say things we wouldn't otherwise say, to do things we wouldn't otherwise do. When we look at James chapter 1 this morning, James is going to sort of walk us through this phenomenon. Why does this happen to us? Why is it that we say, I want to follow Jesus, and I, I read the Bible, and I pray, and I feel very spiritual when I am in my room reading the Bible and praying or in church singing these songs, but when push comes to shove and the temptations and the trials and the circumstances of my life begin to bear down on me, something happens in my heart and in my mind that causes me to sin. What is that? What is it that happens when this external circumstance turns into an internal anger, frustration, and leads to sin? What's going on? 
Like most of us, perhaps, when that happens, we begin to cast about for somebody to blame. It was McDonald's fault. It was the other driver's fault. It was my spouse's fault. It was my kid's fault. Maybe you even say it was, it was God's fault. If God had not put me in a situation where I was going to have to wait 35 minutes instead of 25 minutes, I wouldn't have done that. If God had given me different kids or a different spouse or a different job or a different type of day, I wouldn't have done that. James is going to talk about that temptation that we have in the face of trial, in the face of difficult circumstances to say, I don't trust God. God is responsible and I deserve whatever I do next. The only way that I can win at school is if I cheat. The only way I can be happy while in this marriage is if I cheat. The only way I can provide all the money that I feel I need is if I neglect my family and sell my soul to the office. If God had not put me in this situation, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing. That's where James is going to take us this morning. So you remember last week we talked about trials have the, the opportunity, we have an opportunity in the midst of trials to, to see our faith deepened and our focus uh, strengthened. In other words, we have an opportunity to strengthen our trust in God, to say, God, I don't know why this thing is happening to me, but I'm going to trust you in the midst of it. We also have an opportunity to center our hope on Jesus Christ, to say, I believe that Jesus died and Jesus rose, and if I believe that, I believe one day he's coming back. And so all of these trials and, and difficulties and hard circumstances, they're temporary, and God is in the business of raising people from the dead. And so if God raised Jesus from the dead and raises people from the dead, then no matter what I'm facing today, I can trust him that he'll provide for me forever, right? And so trials can strengthen our faith and focus our hope, but it's not a given that they will. And we said that as well last week, that, it, that a lot hinges on how we respond. And so James is going to take us through how do we respond when trials come and we feel that external circumstance, creating temptation within us. Here, here's where he's going to take us then. How do we respond in the face of these trials? Let me, let me begin chapter 1, starting in verse 13. He says, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. All right, I want to spend a couple of minutes uh, in just this verse, breaking this verse down. Because uh, one thing that's really important to know, we talked about this briefly last week. In the Greek language, uh, the word for tempted and the word for tested, it's the same word. So, for example, in verse 2 of chapter 1, he says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various Trials. That's the same Greek word. This is the, it's the noun form of this same Greek word, a trial and a temptation. Uh, the Greek language uses the same word for external circumstances and the internal temptation to sin. Same thing in verse 12. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. This is this word pyrazo. It's the same word then that you see in verse 13 when it says, let no one say when he is tempted or when he is tried, pyrazo, I am being 
tempted. I am being pyrotsoed by God. All right, so uh, when we look at this verse, the first thing we have to ask is, is James talking here about the external trial, or is he talking about the internal temptation towards sin that's produced by that trial? You can see the connection. Right? We've talked about that already this morning. The, the deal is that external temptation can turn into internal temptation. All right, so we got to decide, what, what is he talking about here in verse 13 right, right away? I think that the most likely way of understanding this first phrase in James 1.13 is James is actually saying this. Uh, I think the best way to understand it, he says, let no one say when he is tested, that is when, when you experience these external trials, when he's tested, let nobody say, I'm being tempted by God. In other words, he's been talking about external trials all the way through the first 12 verses, and now he says, hey, when you're facing that kind of trial, when you're being tested, when the bank account is low, when the job isn't what you wanted, when your spouse is having conflict with you, when the kids seem like they're out of control and they're hard, when your health is failing, when you're experiencing conflict with your faith in the world, when you are being tested by these circumstances, what you must not do is believe the lie that says, God is the one that is tempting me. This is God's fault. We dare not say that. Instead, he says, the first thing we ought to do when trials come is reject sin's lies. Reject sin's lies, right? Because the first thing, again, as I mentioned that we're all tempted to do in these moments is, is blame somebody. And often that somebody is God. Think of Adam and Eve for a moment. In the Garden of Eden, God places them there and he gives them everything they need and more. And then there's one tree that they're not supposed to eat from. And we don't know how long it takes, but eventually they eat from that tree, right? The serpent comes in and he says, hey, you know, God is not really being uh, forthcoming with you. The reason God doesn't want you to eat from that tree is because he knows you'll be your best self if you eat from that tree. Your eyes will be open. You'll understand the knowledge of good and evil. And God doesn't want that. God wants to keep you in darkness and ignorance. And so they believe the lie and they eat from the tree. And then God shows up while they're trying to hide from him because they're ashamed. Finally, when God gets out Adam and Eve together. You remember what happens? He says to Adam, he says, hey, uh, who told you to eat from the tree? And you remember Adam's first response. He goes, it was the woman that you gave me. You see where he immediately goes. Hey, listen, God, I wasn't going to eat it. I was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. And by the way, I was there because you gave me this woman. If you hadn't given her to me, if you'd given me maybe some different woman, some other woman, uh, then, then I wouldn't eat from the tree, but you gave her to me. And so she suggested that I eat it. And I'm just going to be honest, if somebody gives me food, I eat it. I'm sorry. It's just, it's just the way I am. Right? And so he turns around immediately and he blames not only Eve, but he blames God for putting him in this situation. This is what James is talking about. When you are tested by these trials, when something in your life causes you to question the goodness of God, the power of God, the love of God, and you begin to feel inside this desire to sin, to disobey God, because you say, I deserve what God has not given me. I deserve to take now what God has not given me now. And you begin to feel this inside. He says, don't blame God. It's not God's fault. 
It's not God's fault. How do we know that it is possible to resist in those moments? Well, because Jesus resisted in those moments. James says, hey, God's never going to send you into a situation because he's trying to crush you, because he's trying to cause you to sin, because he's trying to lead you away. Now, God may put you in a spot where there are external circumstances that try you in order to strengthen your faith and focus your hope. But God's not going to try to get you to sin. I want you to notice Matthew chapter 4, toward the beginning of Christ's ministry. Look at this, Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. This is remarkable. Uh, It says, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, that kind of blows your mind a little bit when you read it, right? Now, wait a second. The Spirit led him there into the wilderness where Jesus would fast for 40 days and 40 nights and his physical strength was depleted and he was sort of uh, in a spiritually vulnerable place. The Spirit led him there, but who tempted him? God didn't tempt him. The devil tempted him. So why was he there? He was there to draw closer to God through fasting, through prayer, through the strengthening of his body, and the strengthening of his trust in the Father. This is why Hebrews later would say that that even Jesus learned experientially how to walk with God, how to deepen his faith in God. So here's one of these moments where God places him in this spot to deepen his faith, and the devil immediately takes advantage of it, and he shows up at what he assumes is Christ's weakest moment and begins to tempt him to act in ways that would disobey God. Now notice How does Jesus respond in that moment? Well, not like the first Adam, but instead with every temptation, Jesus turns to the word of God. Man shall not live by bread alone. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Right, Jesus immediately turns to the word of God. You shall worship the Lord your God alone. Because it's written in in his heart. So in that moment of testing, Jesus doesn't turn and say, well, God, you made me do this. I've got to sin. But he digs deeper into the word of God. That's why Hebrews 4 would say later, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted or tried, same word, pyrazo, tested in all things, just as we are, yet without sin. Jesus experienced the circumstances of life that push many of us towards sin. And so James says, look, when you're being tested, you don't go and, and, and say, hey, God's the one that is doing, doing this to me. Why? He says, well, God can't be tempted by evil, and therefore God doesn't tempt anyone. What's he getting at with that? Very simply, somebody who isn't interested in sin isn't going to try to make you sin. Right, so you've probably never met a person who's been like, I think you should get drunk, but I never get drunk. I don't even drink alcohol. Right, the only person who's gonna try to make you get drunk is the person that says, I want you to join me in this activity I'm already involved in. The kind of kid who tries to convince you to cheat on the test, for example, is already the kind of kid who is a cheater. Kids who don't cheat aren't gonna try to talk you into cheating. God is perfectly pure, perfectly sinless. He's not tempted by evil. There's never a moment where God says, I think I'm going to sin, so God's not gonna try to tempt you. So when you hear that voice that says, this is God trying to put me in a spot where I will disobey, that's a lie. 
So if it doesn't come from God, then where does it come from? Well, James tells us, or in the words of a modern theologian, it's me, hi, I'm the problem. It's me, right? Look in the mirror. What does he say? It's not God. It's me. It's you. Each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. Each one of us is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust or his own desire. So James says, here's what happens. It's not God trying to make you sin. What happens is in the face of these external temptations, we say, well, I deserve this. I have no other choice. I'm in this situation and we desire something that we think we can't have. And so we reach out and grab it in ways that God has not sanctioned. Now, I want to be clear. James is not saying that desire is bad. He's not saying that this desire for security or this desire for social connection or this desire for intimacy or this desire uh, for uh, financial well-being or any of those things are evil or bad. God made us to long for relationship with him, relationship with others. God made us to need things like food and drink and connection with other people. It's not the desire that is bad. It's the desire run amok. It's the desire misdirected. So I ran across a, uh, an article as I was thinking about this concept this week. Uh, this article said that about 95% of high school students in the United States admit that they've been cheating in the past year. They admit it. That's not including some percentage of the other 5% that I assume don't admit it. So the vast majority, and they said, well, why do you cheat? Well, their reasons boiled down to academic pressure to get good grades, get into the right colleges, and so on. So I want you to follow the train of thought here. Maybe you've experienced this. You say, hey, physics is really hard for me. And if I don't pass physics, I won't get into the right college, which is Texas A&M University, right? And if I don't get into the right college... I won't get the right job, and if I don't get the right job, I won't make the right amount of money. I won't be able to marry the right person. I won't be able to live in the right neighborhood. All of my life is going to fall apart if I fail physics, and so I have no choice. I have to cheat. And by the way, everybody else is cheating. Do you see that? There's a desire. I want stability. I want security. I want to be taken care of. And I cannot trust God to do it. Therefore, I will take matters into my own hands. And, and, and I read that and I thought, ah, oh, kids today, right? But then they went on and they asked the kids, again, reasons that they cheat. And it says, many kids also say that their parents are setting a bad example by fudging on their income taxes lying about their age to pay lower admission prices or cheating their way out of a speeding ticket. You see what happens? Well, you know what? We're, we're tied on money, and I know you're 13, and I know the kid's meal is only 12, but kind of, you know, just shrink your legs a little bit, and it'll be fine. And what does it communicate? When I'm worried I don't have enough, when there's external trial, we don't trust God to provide. We take what God has not given in the timing that we demand. So he says, your desires cause you to sin. Right? Desire conceives this sin. And then he goes on and he says, I, I want you to understand 
in a crystal clear way where this leads. He says, each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust or his own desire. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Brings forth death. So you see this progression. External trial. Internal temptation because I desire what God has not given right now and I don't trust God. So then I sin. I try to take what God has not provided because I think I have to take care of me because God will not take care of me. And James says this leads to death. And I want us to understand, we're going to see this throughout the book of James. James means this literally. All right, James is pulling on the Proverbs a whole lot. And there's a constant theme in the Proverbs that a life of sin leads to death. He's not saying that fudging on your income taxes this year is going to result in you going to an early grave. But what he is saying is that God has arranged the world and you and me in such a way that the way that we are most likely to thrive, the way we are most likely to have a life free of conflict with God and conflict with others, the way we are most likely, in fact, to be healthy is to obey and trust God. And when we reject that and we run away from that, he says, that is a cycle that leads to death. You see this in the Proverbs as well. Proverbs 19, 16. He who keeps the commandment keeps his soul, but he who is careless of conduct will die. Proverbs chapter 9. This is talking about sexual immorality. It says, the woman of folly is boisterous. She is naive and knows nothing. To him who lacks understanding, she says, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. Look at this. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of the grave, that there is a way of life that leads us to death, that we dig our own graves. God doesn't dig your grave and toss you in when you're in the midst of trials. We dig our own graves. There are statistics that bear out this biblical reality. Again, this week, I read that one in 100 deaths in the United States today is due to sexual behavior, some sort of immoral sexual behavior that leads people to literal death. As we know, of course, alcohol and drugs kill people every single day. And there's an increase in what we call deaths of despair, deaths due to drug Drugs and alcohol and the despair that, that follows the use of those things. We know that. I think what we often forget, though, is that there are other sins that seem less obvious, less right out there on the surface, that also kill. Here's one that might surprise you. I read this. Uh, uh, Iowa State University study published last year. They collected data from 1,300 men over the course of 40 years, and they found that the angriest men, the angriest 25%, were one and a half times more likely to die early. Why? Because anger stresses your heart, stresses your body, stresses your relationships, and literally can put you in the grave. We could go on and on and on. God designed the world in such a way that the best way to live is to trust him. And so James says this, that sin when it is fully grown, a life of sin leads to death. And so th this, is, this is what he's getting at is uh, when you are facing this trial, 
whatever it is, trials of various kinds, again, you say, you know what? There's not quite enough, not quite enough money. And so as a result, I will, I will neglect my family and sell my soul to the office. And what does that create? It creates relational disconnect and isolation and loneliness, which can lead to stress, which can lead to death. Right, or we say, you know what, this marriage isn't fulfilling, therefore I will step outside of this marriage to try to take for myself what, what God has not offered. And again, it leads to relational isolation and maybe even to physical consequences that lead us to death. Right, And so James says, this is the cycle of sin. This is what happened to Adam and Eve. It leads not only to their physical death, but also ultimately for those who don't know Jesus, it leads to spiritual death, that they are separated from God forever. And so James says, when you're in that moment of trial or temptation, you say, God is trying to hurt me. God is trying to tempt me. He says, look in the mirror. It's you. You dig your own grave. So he says, here's what I'm calling you to do then in this moment of trial. Reject the lies of sin. Reject it. Don't believe it. When the serpent comes calling, send him away. When my flesh comes knocking and says, this is the way to happiness, even though it's outside of God's design, reject that voice. But instead, he says, here's what I want you to do. You reject the lies of sin, but instead trust, trust in the grace of God. Trust in the grace of God. Follow with me, verses 16 to 18. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruit among his creatures. So he says, look, I don't want you to listen to the lies of sin. Don't be deceived. He says, here's who God is. God is a God of good gifts. Every good and perfect gift comes down from above from the Father of lights. Now that's an interesting phrase, the Father of lights. It's not used, as far as I know, anywhere else in the scripture. What is it referring to? I think what it's referring to is this idea that God is the one who made everything you see. The earth and the sun and the moon and the stars, everything in the heavens, everything on the earth. He is the father of the heavenly lights. He is also the father of all of humanity. And the one who is placed in us, his image and his light. We read from Psalm 136 just earlier this morning. Where, where Psalm 136 connects the creative work of God, God creating the world with God's loving kindness, his mercy, and his goodness. Look at it again. To him who made the heavens with skill, for his loving kindness is everlasting. To him who spread out the earth above the waters, for his loving kindness is everlasting. To him who made, here it is, the great lights, for his loving kindness is everlasting. The sun to rule the day, for his loving kindness is everlasting. The moon and the stars to rule by night, for his loving kindness is everlasting. After every phrase, he says, if you doubt the goodness of God, remember, God made the sun, God made the moon, God made the stars, God made the earth you're on. God created a universe that is designed to host us that is conducive to our lives. 
God created the universe as an overflow of his love. The love that he had in himself before time began was expressed most perfectly at the beginning when God spoke the universe into existence. And as time goes on, it's expressed even more fully in the person of Jesus Christ. But the reality that you have life in a universe God designed where the sun is just the right distance away and the moon is just the right distance away that so far we haven't crashed into it is evidence of the goodness of God. And so he says, when you're facing trial, you go and you, you look around and you say, there is a God who made this world because he loves me, because he's good, because he's not a God of death. God isn't digging my grave. God wants to raise us up. God is not a God who is looking for ways to crush us, but instead a God who has gone to great and extraordinary lengths to save us. And unlike the sun, the moon, and the stars, notice he says, in God, there's no variation or shifting shadow. Right? The moon has phases. God doesn't have phases. The sun comes up, the sun goes down, the sun's position in the sky shifts based on where we are at any given moment. God doesn't do that. God doesn't shift. God doesn't move. So when you're in the face of trial, your, your first thought should not be God's trying to pull out the rug from underneath me. No, God is good. God is stable. God never changes. If you're of a certain age, this image will look very, very familiar to you. Every single fall for something like 45 years, Charles Schultz drew a comic strip where Lucy would pull the football away from Charlie Brown. And every single year, Charlie Brown would believe her promises that she wouldn't do it. And she would elaborate on why she wouldn't do it this time. There was only one time, in fact, I read in, in all of the 45 years, that she did not pull the football away. And it was right after Charlie Brown got out of the hospital. And so he ran and he kicked the ball and he actually missed it and kicked Lucy in the arm and broke her arm. But other than that... Every single time, what did she do? Pulled the ball away. Pulled the ball away. And Charlie Brown kept trusting and kept trusting and kept trusting because Charlie Brown is gullible. And he believes somebody who is unreliable, whose promises can't be trusted. James says, no, 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 no. The God that you serve, the God that you worship, he's not going to pull the rug away. He's not trying to trick you. He's not trying to make you look foolish. He's not going to put you in that type of a spot where you must sin. That's not who he is. He doesn't shift. He doesn't change. He always keeps his promise. And then he goes on and he says, we know this. Verse 18, because of this, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. Now, what's, what's really fascinating here, this, this phrase, brought us forth, that's one word in the Greek language. It is the same word that is used in verse 15 when it says that sin brings forth Death. You see what James wants us to see is that sin births death. Sin brings forth death, but God brings forth us. He brings forth life. He raises us from the dead. We dig our own graves. God raises us up. How did he do it? By the word of truth, by the good news we see in the scripture about Jesus Christ who was the, and is the living word of God that Jesus Christ died to take our death. Jesus went into our grave for us and rose again 
to raise us up. And he says, you've been born again now. You know God because he has birthed us again by his word, by his power. God wants to raise you up. That's who God is. God wants to give you life. God wants to give you eternity. God wants to give you perfect connection with him and with your fellow believers. God wants to give you everything good. You just have to trust him. First Peter chapter 1 says, For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring word of God. You've been born again. You trust in Jesus Christ. You know that you have a life that can never fade away, that can never be snatched, that will never end in death because you'll be raised up. So God is good. All the time. All the time. God is good. God never changes. And he says, he brought us forth by the word of truth. Why? So that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. I love that imagery. If you see an apple tree beginning to produce fruit in the spring, what do you know? Well, you know that there's more fruit coming. Right, that, that first fruit is a promise of more fruit coming. And so when James says, we've been brought forth as a kind of first fruits, he's saying a couple of things. One, he's saying the relationship you have with God now, that is just the beginning. It's just the beginning. There's a whole lot more to come. And so when you're struggling with temptation and trial and difficulty in this world, you need to remember that this is just the beginning. The the relationship that we have with God, Paul describes it as right now, we're looking through a glass darkly. We don't see things perfectly. We don't experience God fully, but the day is coming when we will. What we have now is a down payment, the first fruits of the Holy Spirit of God who lives within us. So we know him. We know we have eternal life. We have the capacity through the power of the Spirit to obey to reject sin's lies and to trust God's goodness. We just don't have everything yet. This is just the beginning. And so we live in hope. We live in faith that the day is coming when all of God's creation will one day be renewed. You and I are just the beginning of God's work to redeem all of his creation from top to bottom. That's why in Romans 8, Paul says, we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly, for it. We live in hope. We trust a God who doesn't shift or change. And so what James is trying to tell us is when we're in those moments of trial, those moments that are threatening to break our hearts, you have to trust God's grace. Refocus your hope. God is good all the time. I can I can remember a time early in our marriage, and I've shared some of this with y'all before, when uh, finances were extremely tight. And there was one year that I had a couple of health problems that cost a lot more than we had financially for the tests and the doctor's bills. And then uh, we were driving to a friend's wedding 
that was far away in my car that really was not designed to drive very far at all. And the engine just died, blew a gasket on the way to their wedding. And I knew it was going to cost thousands. And I remember sitting in that moment. And you know, one of the first thoughts that came to my mind, God is trying to squish us. That didn't come from the Spirit. That comes from the voice of the enemy. And that comes from the voice of my flesh that says, I deserve better than this. And what James says is in those moments, you remind yourself, I worship a God who is good. I have a hope that cannot be stolen away. And so I change that script. God, I don't know what's happening. But I know you've saved me in Jesus. God, I don't know what's happening, but I know that you have an eternity and a plan for my eternity that is greater than anything I can imagine. I don't know what's happening, but I know that in this moment, I can exercise the option for this trial to either strengthen me or rip me apart. And so I want to choose faith. I want to choose trust. So let me offer a couple of habits that I think spring out of these concepts James brings to us. One is simply this. Every day, thank God for his good gifts. Every day, thank God for his good gifts. When you wake up in the morning, before you go to bed at night, you say, God, I thank you. Thank you that I'm alive, that I have breath in my lungs. I thank you that I woke up this morning. God, I thank you that I know you and that the Spirit of God lives in my heart. Thank him for the friendships and the relationships that you do have. Thank him if you ate breakfast in the morning or dinner last night. You thank him for all of his good gifts every day because that fortifies our hearts in those moments of trial. And then secondly, I want to encourage you to memorize Scripture. To memorize Scripture to remind yourself of His truth. Earlier on in my life, I took the time to memorize, for me, what is just a, a passage I come back to all the time, Psalm 23. Our sound team, our production team knows that's what I recite during my sound check every morning on Sunday. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want, I shall not have any lack. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. And when I face these moments of trial and difficulty and pain, I come back to that. I say, my God is a good shepherd. My God wants to lead me to life, even as I'm trying to dig my grave. Maybe you memorize James 1:17. Every good and perfect gift comes down from above, from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow, to remind yourself of the God we worship, to remind ourselves we can reject the lies of sin and grab hold of his grace and his goodness because he loves us. God is good all the time, all the time. God is good. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for your word.
we know that you're good, and yet when we're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, it is hard to see it. It's hard to believe it. We know that in Jesus Christ, we have a high priest who sympathizes with us, who's been tempted in every way just as we are, yet without sin. And so our prayer is that we would look to his example and we would rely on your spirit's power to reject sin and trust your grace. We thank you that you're in the business of raising the dead and of bringing life and hope into what seem to be hopeless situations. So let us trust you. Teach us to deepen our faith and refocus our hope in every moment. It is in Jesus' name we pray all of these things. Amen.